Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from a sunny and hot day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our forest management investigative series. Our focus today will be on the growing wood pellet bioenergy sector. Joining us for this episode is Dr. Mary Booth, PhD. Dr. Booth is a nationally recognized advocate known for producing high-quality, data-driven arguments. An ecosystem scientist by training, she received her doctoral degree in ecology at Utah State University, focusing on biogeochemistry and plant ecophysiology. She completed postdoctoral fellowships at the Ecosystem Center at the Woods Hole Biological Laboratory and the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Dr. Booth's approach to advocacy was formed at the Environmental Working Group, where she served as a senior scientist working on water quality. She currently directs the Partnership for Policy Integration, Science and Advocacy Group work on greenhouse gas, air pollutants, and forest impacts of bioenergy, and has provided science and policy support to hundreds of activists, researchers, and policymakers across the U.S. and Europe. Dr. Booth, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Very good. So perhaps let's begin with uh, what prompted you to study uh, ecology and brought you into this field? Wow. Uh, Studying ecology was um, somewhat a product of having read Dune as a Okay. And I went to Utah State and I was in a department. I was actually in the rangeland ecology program. Um, so I went to school with a guy, a bunch of guys with big belt buckles <laughs> and, uh, working on, you know, on all kinds of things about managing, uh, us rangelands and they happen to have a very good ecology program. But my interest in, uh, ecology started because I was interested in deserts and, um, climate change and land use change and the idea of land degradation and reclaiming degraded lands. Um, so I started as a dryland ecologist. Okay, and and ecophysiology is is that uh, sort of the plants' adaptation to their ecological environment, or yeah. I haven't heard that yeah. term before. Yep how how plants uh, negotiate their environment basically. Yep. Okay. Okay. Very good. And so then, how did the partnership for policy integration come into existence? I, I assume that's your brainchild, is it? it? It's actually the partnership for policy integrity. Um, okay. But integration is a good word too. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I I was working on the issue of biomass energy uh, here in Massachusetts um, back in two thousand eight and nine, and under I had started a sort of a small ad hoc group called the Massachusetts Environmental Energy Alliance. And it became apparent that uh, the biomass energy juggernaut was accelerating in the US. So I decided to form a group that would kind of be the platform for working on the issue nationally. So I I founded PFPI. But um, I also wanted to, you know, have the name a name for the group in the in the hope that I would not always be working on bioenergy. So I didn't want to put bioenergy in the name of the group. I thought, well, why not have a kind of a generic name where I can work on anything, but it hasn't actually worked out that way because here, here I am like 12 years later, still working on this issue. I mean, we do work on other stuff and we really do a lot of work on forests in general and not just bioenergy, but um, this, this issue has really dominated our work, I have to say. 
Oh, yes. And just so you know, my original formal academic background is in forest sciences. I spent uh, nearly a decade uh, in the industrial uh, logging camps of British Columbia. So I've, I've seen seen the worst and I can't say that I've seen the best because I don't know that it's out there. Um, and certainly our, our forests have taken a beating in this part of the woods and uh, all the other ecological degradation that goes with it, uh, particularly the uh, salmonid habitat. Uh, it was interesting. I had a guest on yeah, several weeks ago now, almost a month ago, uh, from the Russian Far East, uh, Dr. Mikhail Skolpets, uh, who's a fisheries scientist. And he informed me that um, since the inception of the Soviet Union, uh, that the forest practices there mandated a one kilometer setback uh, from each side of a fish bearing, major fish bearing stream. Uh, which was rather a shocking revelation. And certainly if that had been the case in British Columbia or even half of that, uh, I think things would look entirely different on the landscape right now. So that uh, it's interesting that we think of, you know, Russia as being backward thinking, yet uh, they're miles ahead of us on this issue. Or they were back then. I don't know what their forestry practices look like these days. Uh, they're, they're, the industrial logging companies are lobbying to change that, um, but thus far the scientists uh, that uh, hold the ability or control the ability to moderate that uh, decision have had held fast. And obviously there's some, some poaching and some illegal activity that goes on, but uh, legally they're still required to remain, maintain that setback. So uh, that's, that's an impressive setback. It sure, it sure is. I mean, and I'm sure you would have similar instances in, in your uh, uh, studies that uh, had you had those type of setbacks, we'd have a whole different uh, landscape out there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So any, can you highlight any successful initiatives uh, that uh, PFPI has been involved with to date? Well, um, when I first started working on this issue, as I said, it was here in Massachusetts and I got involved in the issue of biomass energy because we had three large power plants, wood-burning power plants, proposed in the state um, that the combined wood demand from those plants would have been more than the state was actually harvesting per year. Um, so that was very alarming to me and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, we successfully pressured the state to conduct a scientific study on basically the carbon impact, the greenhouse gas impact of logging and burning forest wood for energy, which unsurprisingly concluded that uh, burning trees happens quickly and trees regrow slowly. So uh, there is a surge of greenhouse gas emissions from burning wood that is not offset by regrowth in any time frame that's relevant for addressing climate change. And as a result of that, um, the state actually enacted new rules that took low efficiency biomass power out of the state's renewable portfolio standards. So Massachusetts no longer grants renewable energy credits, which come attached to hefty subsidies uh, for biomass power if it's generated in a, a electricity only plant. Um, there is still an exception for combined heat and power plants that are fairly efficient. So, um, I certainly, we certainly can't take credit for that for that success. I mean, it was a work of a of many many people over several years and a and a big effort. But we were integral to that to that effort, and um, so yeah, that's that's a success. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's 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 good yeah. to hear. Good to hear. And I think one of the the important things um, to note is that 
apart from the the greenhouse gas and the carbon sequestration argument, which uh, you know there's definitely two camps in terms of uh, the effect of CO2 on uh, warming. The bigger issue to me is that the ecosystem integrity of those forest stands is not renewable in terms of, of what this time span would, it would be. Uh, and you know, certainly if we look at what's happening in northern British Columbia, um, those time spans of forest renewal to the point where you could re-enter and re-harvest are much beyond what a human lifespan is. And, and to me, you know, degradating a, a virgin stand of timber or, a, or an old growth stand which is of low productivity and perhaps low timber value to turn into pellets simply is an argument that one can't make uh, in this day and age, given the, the scarcity of that habitat and, and that those ecosystems. But, but unfortunately it is being made. I mean, that's exactly how it's being justified yes. uh, in BC is that, you know, Hey, this wood doesn't have other commercial value. I mean, that's the thing that's truly scary and different about the biomass industry is that it, assigns it gives a lot of value to otherwise low value wood that would have been left alone because yes. of these massive renewable energy subsidies from yes. Europe and Asia. Yes. And so and, these and we'll get shipped, yeah. We'll get into those subsidies, and, and I know that you've been doing some work with my colleague, uh, Michelle Colony, Colony up in, um, in Prince George with Conservation North, uh, which is a great yeah. organization, and, and uh, I wish they would have uh, more impact on our, on our government, but they seem not to be listening. Um, you know, with respect to British Columbia, are wood pellets being made from whole trees here, to your knowledge? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um I've, I've been there myself and I've seen the trees on the trucks. I have photo, photographic evidence. So, and uh, Michelle and her colleagues have identified uh, areas in actually primary forest. I mean, incredibly, this is forest that has never been logged at all or that has been logged so lightly that it's not even really noticeable. Um, and these are cut blocks that are being marked by the pellet industry um, for for coming in and, and taking down those trees. Yes, yes. And then am I correct in classifying the official narrative from the governments and proponents of this industry that the wood pellets are being manufactured from wood waste products? Well, waste is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? There's no such thing as waste in a forest. Uh, the ecosystem needs everything. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very tough. You know, it is absolutely true. I will not deny it that the Canadian wood pellet industry was for a long time to a large extent uh, using primarily mill residues as feedstock. Um, but this industry is growing explosively. And um, aside from the fact that, you know, many mill residues actually have higher and better uses. I mean, they can be used to be turned into material, longer lived material goods, like particle board and that kind of thing. But um, the, they've, you know, they've outrun and outstripped those supplies. And uh, now they're turning their eye toward the forests. And then, of course, there's, you know, the issue of, of beetle kill areas um, where, you know, what's going to happen with that wood? Well, this, you know, this starts to get very complicated, you know, genuine fears around, uh, you know, fire and, um, you know, what to do with those lands. But 
the bottom line is that from a climate change perspective, there is really no scenario where liquidating forest carbon into the atmosphere is a better option than leaving it in place or finding another use for it. For sure. Um, yeah. And and with with the the beetle killed uh, wood, if we examine that for a moment, uh, you know, much of that isn't suit obviously not suitable for lumber because it's uh, if it's been dead standing, it's it's checked. And if it remains dead standing for too long, the biological decay processes actually uh, make it useless for pulp as well. Would that not also have very low quality for wood pellet manufacturers? Uh, you know, I guess they're if they're in there and there's a certain percentage of trees they can use, they're probably just taking it all. And uh, or what? Are you, what are your thoughts there? I think they take it all, and um, I think basically because they're grinding it up and pulverizing it. Um, they probably don't care if some of it's not very high quality because, I mean, I'm sure they have some thresholds about a certain level of punkiness that they won't use, but um, they can they can integrate a lot of stuff in there that, you know, bark. I mean, they have minimum thresholds of all kinds of things that they allow in the pellets. And so, um, so with, a, yeah. with a blended feedstock, they can use some of that material that has had the hemicellulose uh, decomposed through the through the fungal decay, and it doesn't matter on the overall product. Then I'm not a pellet manufacturing expert, so I I can't speak to those you know exact specifications. But um, it is my impression that they just pretty much grind everything up, and you know they grind it really fine. They they basically cook it which, um, and then they extrude it through a dye and um, they generally don't need additives to get it to stick together as pellets because it, the process of grinding it and heating it um, makes a, a chemical reaction happen that, so when pellets have that kind of glossy look to them, that's just the natural, natural ingredients in the wood that have been sort of cooked and re-solidified as, as it's extruded out the dye. So, right. um, I think, yeah, I think that they can mix quite a bit of different kinds of wood in there and still get an accept a product that meets their quality criteria. Okay. Which again is, is um, harmful, I think, to these um, on the landscape level of the forests. If we have some of these forests that are going to regrow naturally uh, from the beetle killed situation, we're probably going to see a better species mix than yet another pine forest going in there. Uh, so this gives uh, yet another excuse for the salvage harvesting, which is left, uh, you know, if you've, if you've driven through the province, you've seen these uh, massive swaths of land that have been cleared for uh, the beetle killed wood. Salvage, salvage harvesting is really a disaster. I mean, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the, the body of science on this for up there, but I imagine that many of the arguments are the same as what's in the American West, where, you know, there's also a beetle kill issue and, there's a lot of um, fear being ginned up about fire risk. And, um, you know, the truth is that actually these dead, dead wood areas do not necessarily burn that intensely. Um, there's, there's lots of studies that show that, that fire intensity can be higher in stands that are actually living. So, and then even after a fire, there's still a tremendous amount of carbon that's left in standing and downed wood. And at this point, um, basically from a planetary perspective, it's all hands on deck to store as much carbon as possible in forests and not in the atmosphere. 
I mean, sure, sure. we are really in trouble. And so there is just no scenario where accelerating the transfer of forest carbon into the atmosphere is a good idea. None. Yeah. And then in BC, are wood pellets now also being made from wood, uh, which is sourced from threatened or geographically limited habitat? Have we entered that phase here as well? I, I think Michelle's work, you know, showing that um, these these old growth forests are, are being marked as cut blocks. Um, you know, I don't know the exact status of the how threatened that habitat is, but I mean, the inland rainforest, inland temperate rainforest is a globally rare ecosystem. So, again, why is it being cut for anything, much less something that immediately sends it into the atmosphere? Sure, sure. Um, and then in January 2018, uh, 796 EU scientists produced a paper uh, that stated supplying an additional 3% of global energy with wood biomass would require that logging rates on global forests would need to be doubled. Uh, you know, the proponents behind this bioenergy business, you know, be it the, the EU commission and so forth, I'm just not... Uh, you know, I'm flabbergasted how anyone could justify this increase as somehow a positive or sustainable move. Well, they have um, a lot of really crummy science that they rely on. I mean, I wouldn't even call it science, honestly. Um, and uh, they're very much, I mean, many of the policymakers who have promoted this are either just too credulous about the claims of the forest industry. They're not thinking hard or critically about it, or they're actually, you know, basically forest industry insiders who have jobs as policymakers. I, that's certainly not uncommon. Right, right. And has anyone conducted an analysis to determine how much net energy is actually being provided per kilogram or ton of these wood pellets delivered to the end buyer? Um, you know, I would be very surprised if this figure even approaches 25% of uh, what a fossil fuel would be. Um, well, I think the metric, the, the critical metric of interest is the carbon emissions per unit energy produced. But but also you just mentioned net energy and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking about there, but I think maybe you mean by the time you're done, how much energy you have to invest into it to make the product. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. I mean, so, and, and you know, sort of, sort of further expand on this, uh, you know, looking at what the energy densities of some, you know, basic fuel stocks are where we look at coal or natural gas, um, wood pellets have about a third of the energy when compared to natural gas uh, by volume or weight and about 55% of the energy of coal. Um, however, we're getting a far less uh, productive um, uh, quantity of energy produced for that. Um, in, or sorry, the, the, the CO2 then, which is being produced uh, out of wood is actually twice that of natural gas. Yes, it's one third the amount of energy. So if we look at this whole energy balance from taking it out of the woods to manufacturing it, to shipping this product, which again, isn't very dense overseas, you know, how many actual, uh, megajoules of energy are we providing on a, on a relative basis? If we compare that to fossil fuels, uh, where again, you know, natural gas is delivering half the, uh, CO2 emissions than these wood pellets are. Right. Well, 
there's definitely an energetic and thus carbon cost to making and transporting wood pellets. And that is actually um, in the EU and, and other places that are where that are driving the demand for, you know, like big utility scale burning wood pellets. The only carbon that they count from that is carbon that's emitted from burning fossil fuels during manufacturing and transporting of wood pellets. And the carbon penalty, um, it can add from like, it depends on the process and the, how far it's transported and stuff, but it's like 15 to 30% more carbon on top of the, the carbon inherent in the wood pellet itself. So you're emitting, you know, I think it's, I think it's like 1.65 tons of CO2 um, per ton of wood pellets. I would have to check that, but. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, my, my numbers show it's, it's 0.4 kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour for wood. And that figure is 0.2 for natural gas. And yeah. the, the wood has an energy density of 18 megajoules per kilogram, whereas natural gas is 54 and coal is, you know, an average of 30. Uh, so, you know, if, if we're looking at this metric simply as CO2 emissions, wood pellets lose. Um, and if we're looking at it from an ecological perspective and a net energy delivered or taken from source to deliver at source, you know, wood just simply isn't, uh, it's not even on the radar. Well, all, all fuels have life cycle emissions. I mean, you know, natural gas has unbelievable life cycle emissions of methane leakage from, from mining and transporting it. So, um, I mean, it's, it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say anything that makes it sound like natural gas or coal is like a better alternative than wood. I think the point is that on a, on a per energy, per unit energy basis, uh, wood emits more CO2 than coal or natural gas. Although on a, on an energy input basis, so the energy inherent in, uh, in wood and coal compared to the carbon is very similar, but wood is so much less efficient when you burn it that it emits a lot it takes a lot more of that fuel and and emits a lot more carbon associated with burning that fuel per megawatt hour of electricity generated or or heat but electricity is the easiest you know metric um so in general we say that burning green wood chips emits about 50 percent more co2 per megawatt hour than burning coal and depending on the efficiency of the natural gas plant that you're comparing to, it's like two to 300% the emissions of a natural gas plant. Wow. So per megawatt hour. So, um, you know, people say, oh, but it's, you know, it's carbon neutral. It grows back. Well, it doesn't grow back right away. And actually the cumulative emissions of continuously operating a plant add up and up and up. So um, it takes decades to centuries to offset those emissions to just bring it down to the level that it would have been if you had been burning natural gas that whole time. And the other thing is that, you know, why are we uniquely assigning forest growth and carbon uptake from growing forests to offset bioenergy emissions? Forests take carbon out of the atmosphere, and right now they're taking fossil carbon out of the atmosphere as they grow. If you cut down the forest and pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, 
for the same amount of electricity generation. Now you need to offset that with even more forest growth, which you know will happen eventually if the trees grow back. But you know, you and I were just discussing a few minutes ago, you know, logging trees that are that are like centuries old. Yes. And of course, the carbon stored in these ecosystems is not just in the above ground biomass, it's in the below ground biomass of the tree itself, the soil organic matter, all the, you know, moss and peat in these in these damp BC forests that have like these incredible organic matter layers that store enormous amounts of carbon. And when you get in there and you log it and you rip it up and then the sun's beating down on it and it literally cooks the carbon out of those soils. And so you get this amazing flux of carbon, not just from cutting and burning the trees, but out of the soils. And you're not gonna get that back. You might grow the trees back, but that carbon stock in the soil is the product of literally hundreds or thousands of years of that forest accumulating it. And you can cook it off really fast. Well, and I think again, the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, on a, on a per unit basis. So if, if we imagine some of these uh, old growth, low productivity sites are probably somewhere around 800 cubic meters per hectare of wood volume. And so if you're going to clear a hundred hectares for a certain amount of energy, that can be, that same amount of energy can be harvested from a more efficient source, which would be either natural gas or coal um, to, to power these power plants. And, the degradation to the environment of a, of a hundred acre clear or hundred hectare clear cut and all the antecedent problems in terms of water right. quality, loss of habitat and the, the ecosystem function, especially in a place like British Columbia now where, you know, we're, we're down to sort of one to 3% of yeah. those primary forests. Oh, and so there's simply no excuse now to be harvesting what's left for such a low value uh, energy product, uh, particularly when you know, I think the as much as there's this fervor and climate alarmism, I think there's a growing body of evidence which is showing that uh, you know, in particular with the IPCC models, that none of them have come correct, and that um, the forcing of those models to show that CO2 is driving temperature up, I think, simply aren't there. Um, and when you look at a, a fundamental wait, physics, wait, 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 you're telling me that you don't believe that. That CO2 is increasing global temperatures? Uh, well, I, I think the evidence is very poor to suggest that, in fact. Um, in fact, as, as far as the late 1800s, where we look at uh, Charles, or Carl Schwarzschild and his evaluation of the, um, uh, the atmospheric curves in terms of which gases do what, uh, he has shown that from 400 to 800 parts per million, there's probably a 1% uh, change in temperature. So I think we're We've been led to believe something uh, which is easily taxable, which is carbon dioxide. It creates a narrative, whereas in reality, the greatest greenhouse gas is water vapor. Uh, and I think that's uh, uh, pretty well accepted amongst the physics community. Uh, you know, uh, but, that's, but water vapor could be, those can both be true. Uh, water vapor can be a strong greenhouse gas, but that doesn't mean that CO2 increasing CO2 isn't increasing global temperature. And in fact, we're, you know, in a climate crisis and CO2 is increasing and temperature is increasing. I mean, so I absolutely have to push back on you about that. I, I didn't realize that, that you were a, a climate change skeptic. Um, so- Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, again, from, from my perspective, um, 
you know, we're doing, there's far greater damage to BC's environment through logging this material simply by the denudation of the landscape compared to an argument regarding carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which, you know, if you talk to the world experts on, on CO2 and how it actually functions in the atmosphere, going from 400 to 800 parts per million has very, very little effect. Uh, I mean, I can show I, you that. I'm not sure what world experts you're talking to, but the world experts I listen to are the IPCC, and they are, you know, unquestionably, we are at the onset of, it's, it's about to get a lot worse. We're about to see, you know, heat waves and climate change effects, uh, you know, really strong storms, um, this exponential function of, of for instance, here in the US where we have these incredible tropical storms that come up through the Gulf, you know, relatively small increases in the sea surface temperature lead to really huge magnifying effect on the strength of these storms and the amount of damage that they do. So climate change impacts are, are going to be massive. I mean, they're gonna make the damage done to the economy by COVID look like nothing. And so, I don't want to debate climate change with you on this podcast because it's, sure, it's sure. like, I, I just, I totally think you're wrong. And I'm glad you said that you're going to run the whole thing so that you won't edit these comments out. But um, I encourage you to talk to some different experts if you're talking to experts who are telling you that increasing CO2 isn't a problem. Well, it's, it's, you know, the same, it's again, the same false narrative as uh, wildfires have been increasing, um, which, you know, they simply haven't been. Uh, it depends on on what record you look at. And of course, you know, we have uh, James uh, Hansen or Jim Hansen, who famously puts out the graph, which leaves out the uh, early portion of the 1900s, where wildfires in the U.S. were on uh, orders of magnitude greater than they would have been recently. Uh, so there's a little, little bit of deception in that field, I find. I don't think that the record of CO2 increasing and like is at all comparable to what people have been saying about wildfires. I mean, I agree with you that the frequency and intensity of wildfires, um, you know, looks different depending on what section of the of the climatological record you look at, and you know, I don't, I don't dispute that, and I'm certainly not an expert on that. But what I, what I do know is that it's absolutely unambiguous that increasing greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere is driving climate change. And you know, coming back to the original t topic of our conversation, which is, you know, chopping down trees and turning them into wood pellets and burning them for energy, why is this happening? It's happening because governments. Uh, want to promote renewable energy so that they can stop burning fossil fuels and stop emitting so much CO2. Unfortunately, burning wood per unit energy emits more CO2 than burning fossil fuels. And because trees don't grow back overnight, um, those emissions are not offset. Um, and so this is a huge problem. And, and in fact, it's I think it's also a false a false comparison to say that, well, we, you know, what you were sort of implying before, like, oh, we shouldn't be burning wood pellets. We could just be burning these marvelous fossil fuels that are such concentrated energy and, you know, are so much lower emissions and, and 
whatever. I mean, that's, you know, fossil fuels are the product of millions of years of compressed organic matter being turned into the most amazing, you know, energy rich thing that you can then burn, but it, it is heating the atmosphere. So, the, but it's not, it's a false narrative to say that, oh, if we don't burn wood pellets, we're going to go back to fossil fuels. No, what's really happening is that there is a finite pool of renewable energy subsidies out there. And every time you give money to a coal plant because it's switching over to burning wood pellets, that's money that you are not spending on wind and solar and geothermal and tidal and things that emit either no emissions or, or dramatically less CO2 than burning either wood or fossil fuels. So, so, you know, I, let's, yeah, let's examine these subsidies because that, that's uh, of interest to me um, because obviously any business that requires a subsidy to exist uh, other than, you know, perhaps farming on the front end where they're loaning farmers some money at the beginning of the year so they can get the crop in the ground and paying it off at the end. That makes sense to me. But beyond that, uh, you know, if the subsidy is required to make a business profitable or, or operational, that's not really a business. So where are these, how, how do these subsidies shake out and, and, and how are they applied within this business? Um, well, renewable energy subsidies in the US and, and in Europe too um, are generally uh, funded off of rate payers so the rate payer, you're paying extra on your electricity bill, basically. The government collects that money and then reallocates it out to renewable energy generators. And sometimes that's tax money and sometimes it's extra money that you're paying on your electricity bill. Um, but the bottom line is that at least for electricity generation, each megawatt hour or kilowatt hour of electricity has... a Sometimes they're called green tags, credits, renewable recs, renewable energy credits, renewable. But basically, each one has a price, and they're they're um, it. It's kind of a it stands in for the so-called environmental attributes of the electricity. So if you're if you're a, a megawatt hour of solar, comes with, you know, zero emissions basically. Um, and, and not just CO2 emissions, but no particulate matter and no NOx, no air pollution. So um, that is worth something because the presumption is that if you put an extra megawatt hour of solar on the grid, that means that somewhere else you can take a megawatt hour off of some other dirty, you know, dirty generator. And that sort of works. I mean, the part of the problem with all of this is that there is an assumption that displacement is happening, but in fact, that's not necessarily guaranteed. They're not necessarily, if, if overall energy use is rising, you can increase your renewable generation and still have coal and gas use still going up. Um, in fact, here in the US, we do see a dramatic decline in coal use, but that's mostly because natural gas has gone up and also renewables to some extent. I mean, for instance, the wind industry um, has really taken off. 
here in the U.S. Sure. Uh, so I read on your website as an example, there's a large uh, UK utility, Drax, uh, and they you report that they collect around a billion dollars in subsidies each year. So is this a rate plus that is that is essentially attributed to this energy that they're producing, or or how is that? Uh, where does that billion dollars get accounted for? Uh, it comes out of the pocket of UK ratepayers. So that's public money. Public funding. So re- really a, a, a tax to consume a, a dirtier, less efficient uh, wood yeah. energy, which is degra- yeah, de- degradating our environments uh, across yeah. the, the boreal forests. And Drax, Drax has, has long purchased wood pellets from Canada. And Drax, has, Drax is not only a utility with a, the, you know, this enormous, uh, basically four gigawatts, that's 4,000 megawatt generator coal plant burning in the in the UK that is now uh, transferred four of its six burners over to burning wood pellets. So they also um, have wood pellet manufacturing companies um, in the US. So they're cutting down US trees and turning them into pellets for their own consumption. And they've just purchased Pinnacle, mm. which is the BC company. So Drax, Drax has just purchased Pinnacle Bioenergy, and um, Pinnacle is, you know, as you probably know, one of two pretty big companies in, in BC, the other one being Pacific Bioenergy. But Pinnacle has a lot of plants, and um, they are implicated in increasingly using whole trees for making wood pellets. So Drax is directly now owning and operating plants that are cutting down BC inland temperate rainforest to turn into pellets to burn so that they can claim that they are reducing emissions and generating clean energy when in fact they're increasing emissions and degrading BC's environment but actually the global environment because we all share an atmosphere. Sure. And so then in the absence of these subsidies, could these businesses exist or would they not? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's that's really interesting. Some some wood, you know, wood burning, people burn wood. Many, many people burn wood for, you know, home heating and stuff. Um, You know, you you don't get a subsidy when you burn wood in your home. But these, these big coal plant conversions... The reason they do it is that the subsidies are so lucrative. Drax wouldn't even make money. Like they actually, without the subsidies, they lose their money losing operation. Interesting. And then, so this this business then in Canada, any idea what volumes uh, Canada is producing of uh, wood pellets? Not off the top of my head. Something I should know, but I don't. Okay, and and you have you two or three million tons in that ballpark, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay, and and you've mentioned previously that that is an expanding enterprise. It's uh, in terms of the volumes being exported, that's growing on an annual basis. It has been. It has been. And uh, it, it, sorry, is is Canada one of the leading jurisdictions globally producing this product, or? Yep. Um, Canada is um, definitely, uh, I'm trying to think, I mean, the, I think for for any one country, the U.S. is 
the most production, but okay. Um, Estonia is also a big source. Estonia and Latvia. Um, Russia is producing quite a bit. There's, I mean, one of the most alarming things about the wood pellet industry is how much of it is happening in countries with, with very lax oversight. Despite what you said before about Russia having a setback law, but I mean, they're, you know, they're literally logging the boreal forest um, to turn into to pellets. Yeah, I mean, and certainly from a, that's a comment from a fisheries perspective. Um, right. From a landscape level, I'm sure they have, you know, some excessively large clear cuts where there are no uh, fisheries values in place. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that they're doing a, a good job on the whole. It's just that comment specifically right. from a fisheries perspective. Well, and, and mind you, I mean, I consider the U.S. to be very poorly governed. I mean, we have laws on the books, you know, some some rules and regulations and state regulations about so-called sustainable forestry and all this stuff gets certified. But, you know, just the word sustainability is just it's a meaningless word. Um, basically, it's, you know, they will clear cut, completely clear cut and uh, literally obliterate an entire ecosystem. And they call that sustainable forestry. So how does that word have any meaning? in any context whatsoever. Well, I think the, the word sustainable has been usurped as now an Orwellian term with the rest totally. of these uh, globalist terms that they throw around like uh, confetti. Um, and so, and the, which, which countries, you obviously mentioned the UK, uh, which other countries are the larger consumers of this product? Um, Germany burns a lot of wood pellets. Uh, France, um, we're seeing increasing uptake by Japan and Korea. Um, some of these, some of these, uh, EU countries, I mean, the EU itself has a pretty large wood pellet industry. They're not just importing from the U S and Canada. So, like I said, the Baltic States, are big producers for bulk pellets. And then there's literally hundreds of little, I say little, but you know, uh, wood pellet plants that um, produce maybe 30 or 40,000 tons a year um, that are, some of them are primarily serving the residential market. And then wood pellets themselves are around probably 15% of the biomass that's burned in the EU. Um, okay. And the rest is um, either, you know, green wood chips or firewood or, um, you know, product left over at mills, including black liquor, which is a, a product of the pulp and paper industry, gets burned for energy on site at those plants. And then, you know, sawdust and bark and things from sawmills that can't be turned into a product. So um, there's really a huge variety of materials that get burned as biomass, including some agricultural residues. Um, so wood pellets is a, a portion of that, and it's a highly visible and highly controversial portion because, A, they're targeting some incredible, beautiful old growth forests that shouldn't be cut for anything, much less energy. And, and B, it's just this industry has exploded in the last 10 years, and it's 
really become controversial uh, worldwide. Yeah, and, and certainly in our in our north, I mean, a little, little bit further north than me, the winters get awfully cold, and a lot of people have installed pellet stoves over the years because it's a an automatic way of keeping your your home warm. And some of these places that are a little further afield right. don't have natural gas, and so you know, right. pellet stove is a much more efficient means of heating uh, than a wood stove would be. And so, especially in the convenience side of things, is there any sort of breakdown uh, uh, in Europe in terms of what's residential versus what's industrial scale power? Like, I guess, what is there a breakdown between home heating and and power generation at all? Yeah, and and also the thing that they have in Europe that we don't really have as much here is there are a lot of kind of mid-sized plants like heating or combined heat and power plants that are at a municipal level. There's more district heating there. Um, there's more kind of, you know, institutional heating use of wood for, you know, schools and town buildings and things like that. Um, so there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of those kinds of installations. Right. And I guess, obviously, they range in terms of how efficient they are or whether they have catalytic converters. I mean, some of these new pellet stoves are much like a natural gas furnace in terms of their efficiency. And, uh, you know, I know, I know the Bulkley Valley uh, north of us here, they've mandated catalytic converters in all of their wood stoves to sort of reduce the amount of uh, uh, emissions and so forth. Because in some of those uh, inversions in the wintertime, the, the valley bottoms used to get pretty blue and smoky and uh, pretty pretty nasty air quality. Yeah. So they're, they're working to improve that. Well, it's interesting, actually, because there's been a couple of studies recently um, showing that um, even the most efficient, you know, EPA certified wood stoves and stuff are just not really that much better. The emissions are still really high. Uh, residential wood burning tends to be the largest source of particulate pollution in a lot of places. It's certainly true in the EU. And it kills people. It literally kills people. In the EU, the um, estimate is that it, you know, PM, just PM itself is killing like, you know, two to 300,000 people per year. Wow. And that and was it... pre-COVID. Wow. That was pre-COVID. So, um, you know, knowing as we do about the, you know, interaction of air pollution with worsening COVID symptoms, um, I think we're going to see much, much more impact of air pollution on mortality and morbidity. morbidity. And, and, and so that is that is that also a combination of, you know, your diesel exhaust or is that the two, 300,000 people you're saying that's attributed strictly yeah, to wood that's, burning? That's everybody. That's okay. all okay. all sources. But but wood burning is, um, you know, depending on where you what part of the EU you're in, but parts of, you know, Eastern Europe um, are you know, it can be like half or more of the particulate pollution is from wood burning. Interesting, interesting. Uh, and so are there a set of standards or regulations then in place for these biofuel plants? Uh, and is there a, a shift in regulations or expectations depending on the size of the facility? Well, if you're talking about burning, burning it versus making it. Um, no, this, this know, would be I mean, on, the, on the, the, the power producer side. Yeah. I'm more familiar with the regulatory regime in the US than I am with, with Europe um, and Canada, but um, 
wood burning power plants tend to be regulated much more laxly in the US than a, com a comparable fossil fuel plant like of the same size. Um, under the US Clean Air Act, uh, there's a triggering threshold of 100 tons of a criteria pollutant for like a coal plant that pushes them into a higher and more rigorous permitting regime where they're required to use, you know, kind of do modeling and look at the effects of air pollution and use more uh, air pollution controls. And the standard, if you're a wood burning plant, is 250 tons of the pollutant. So, yeah. you know, a, a comparable sized coal plant would be um, held to a higher, more rigorous standard. And also uh, waste incinerators are held to a more rigorous standard, even though waste incinerators and biomass plants are sort of indistinguishable in some cases. Mm, interesting. And it's, I mean, to me, the I, I had uh, some workings in the alternative energy sector looking at gasification uh, and the you know garbage incineration, which there are some power plants now. I, think, I believe Switzerland is has a number of them. You know, you have a problem with fly ash, and of course, all your other emissions. Uh, whereas gasification seems to uh, re eliminate all of those because you're 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 uh, combusting your syngas. Uh, has anybody looked at a gasification style uh, application for these wood pellets, or is that uh, to your knowledge? Um, I actually did a review. A number of years ago on a on a gasification plant for for wood burner in new york state and um gasification doesn't work very well when you've got a wet fuel so wood pellets are dry so it might it would probably be fine but it's i have not yet seen any gasification plant actually up and running at scale uh, which is a true two-stage gasification plant. So they they talk about gasification for wood burners when they have a two-stage um, two combustion where the combustion is happening in one chamber and then there's more combustion happening in another chamber of the gases that are driven off. But true syngas, like you were talking about, is combustion at very you know low oxygen availability that then collects the syn gas and actually uses it to drive a turbine like a natural gas yes yeah. and i am not aware of any biomass plant that has operationalized that and that is actually running but i'm not i'm not like i used to follow this a lot more closely than i do now so i could be wrong about that but my impression is that it's still kind of um a lot of talk and no action um and it does even when you're creating syngas, you still have a lot of solids that are left over that do end up getting combusted in a traditional burner and emitting a lot of conventional pollutants. Mm -hmm. There's just no getting around that you're going to be making a lot of stuff that you have to dispose of. There are non-combustible, unless you're going to like throw it into the sun, you know, yeah, yeah, too. there's stuff that is going to need to be recombusted and you're going to end up with a lot of very concentrated ash that they also tend to they also tend to promote these things for things like construction and demolition waste where it has, you know, maybe a lot of pressure treated lumber in it. And so it's got copper, chromium and arsenate cocktail for pressure treating and um you know, this this can when you burn that stuff, um, it all gets 
concentrated in this ash, which now has a very high heavy metal content, which also has lead and mercury and there's dioxins. And so then you got to get rid of that stuff. So what do you do with it? You can landfill it, you know, you can, but I mean, these plants burn a lot of wood and it's totally conceivable for them to be generating a ton of ash an hour. Mm. So um, this isn't a small problem, getting and rid so, of it. So and that's, and that's, I mean, that's an interesting point. I hadn't actually considered that. What do these wood-fired plants do with their ash? I mean, like you say, they're, they're producing a ton an hour. I mean, that's got to be a big pile adding up very quickly. If they're burning truly, quote-unquote, clean wood, meaning straight from the forest, which, by the way, isn't that clean because um, there's a lot of mercury and stuff floating around out in the atmosphere that ends up somehow concentrated in tree bark. Like trees kind of collect that stuff. And when you burn it, it gets concentrated in the ash. So, and actually ash from so-called clean wood can have pretty high radioactivity and pretty high lead and mercury content. But that being said, so-called clean ash is sometimes sold to farmers oh, great. as a soil amendment um, or, or given to farmers. Um, sometimes it's uh, spread around in a you know, attempt to improve soils in the forest. That's another terrible idea. Um, but if it's, you know, a, a regulatory regime with any kind of credibility or responsibility, uh, if it's not clean wood, if it's coming from C&D, construction and demolition debris, they, in some cases, they have to treat it as a hazardous material, which means it has to go to a special landfill and be capped. And, you know, and it's ash. It blows around. I mean, sure, sure. bad stuff. So, so like a, a, a large company like Drax, I mean, they must just have piles and piles of this material. Any, any idea that's, what they wind up doing with great, it? I have no idea what they do with their ash, but that's a really great point. I'm going to, I'm going to find out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a, you know, just through this discussion, you know, in my research for the interview didn't really pop into my mind, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously yeah. a waste product here that needs to be dealt with. And yep. you do have a bioaccumulation of all those elements, uh, yep. which, you know, are going to cause a problem somewhere you know whether it's in the farmer's field or washing into yeah. a drain or what have you exactly. uh so your uh pfpi's own analysis of air pollution permits in seven u.s states revealed that biomass burners are always more polluting than natural gas and about the same or slightly worse than coal uh in particular for the the pm50s and nitrogen oxides uh why is this the case it's the same reason basically that uh burning wood emits more co2 than coal, which is that even if the pollution uh, is controlled at the front end on the same the same basis, you have to burn so much more wood to generate a megawatt of hour of electricity, and all of that stuff, you know. So your your output basically on a per megawatt hour of useful useful energy is higher. Yes. So that's true not just for CO two but for particulate matter and and NOx as well. Although, I mean, NOx is tricky because NOx, NOx arises not just because of the nitrogen content of the fuel that you're burning, but also because of combustion conditions and um, how much oxygen is in the combustion mix and stuff. So um, biomass plants are really 
hard to fine tune when you're running them because the fuel can be so variable. Most of them aren't, certainly in North America, like very few plants are, if any, are running on pellets. I think there might be one or two in Canada that are running on pellets, but most plant, most big power plants in the U.S. burn wood, just shredded wood, like hog fuel, green wood chips, construction and demolition waste. So they just chip that stuff and burn it. They don't turn it into pellets first. So, I mean, that's, that's almost more just like an incinerator then at that point. A garb, uh, you know, they're, they're not optimized in the way that a power plant would be with a, a steady feedstock. Yeah. And... It, it depends. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them that have a consistent fuel supply, they, you know, they run it. But, you know, it's fantastically inefficient to burn green wood chips because green wood chips are like half water by weight. I mean, literally 45 to 55% of the weight of wood when it's chipped and taken to the plant is water. So as anyone who's ever run a wood stove knows, you try and burn a green log, you get very little heat out of it. And the reason is that a lot of energy is expended trying to, you know, boiling off that water before sure. you can produce useful heat. And that's the same thing for a power plant as well. So the efficiency, the typical efficiency for a plant burning green chips is around 24 to 25%. That means that for every four tons of wood that you burn, all the CO2 from all of that carbon is, is going off all four tons, but you're only generating energy from one of those tons. Right, right. Right. Uh, and then, so the, the PM50, is that your pollutant of, of greatest concern uh, coming out of these uh, smokestacks of these uh, wood burning plants? Is that is that the one that we need to be most concerned with in terms of human health? Um, yeah, the 2.5 micrometer diameter particulates. So the really, and, and below, um, even sub 2.5, this is, you know, really tiny stuff that is um, very, very difficult to filter out even using modern pollution controls. And some of it actually is condensable PM that comes out of the smokestack, not as PM, but then once it hits the atmosphere, it sort of turns into PM. But this is the stuff that, you know, health people will tell you that, you know, it, you, it's inhaled deep into your lungs, you can't cough it out, it's it can cross the blood brain barrier. Oh wow! Um, it's it's it really gets into people, and it also you know it can be comprised in part of heavy metals and stuff. So there's just a tremendous amount of literature out there on the health impacts of PM two point five, uh, low birth weight, early onset dementia, um, depression. <laughs> wow. Not to mention all the typical respiratory things, you know, asthma, COPD, you know, so it's just air pollution is, is very bad and insidious and, and it, it can affect you even if you don't see it. PM 2.5 tends to be, it's so fine that you, you might not even, like you might look at the smokestack of a, of a plant and just see like a sh heat shimmer coming out of the smokestack and they, they would say, see, it's running clean, but it's actually emitting a lot of PM 2.5 among other things like NOx. And that, that the PM 2.5, there's also, I guess, uh, the molecular structure of that is very spiky. 
Uh, so it actually has physically damaging effects, which would be like similar to, like you say, COPD or an emphysema where it's actually irritating and breaking down the lung tissue. Is that correct? I don't, I don't know anything about the structure of it. I just know that it's so small that you can, it really gets everywhere, you know, but right. yeah. And so, and no, no effective means to scrub this type of pollution from the smokestack then? Well, modern pollution controls do um, eliminate, you know, bag houses and electrostatic precipitators can effectively remove, you know, sometimes you'll hear biomass proponents say, you know, this is a great pollution control, uh, you know, system and it's, and it's, taking out 99.9% of the particulate matter, but that can mean that it's still emitting tens of tons a year. Even sure. with 99.9% removal can still be tens of tons of particulate pollution a year. Interesting. So circle back to British Columbia. Um, I think we've had a long standing problem with a lack of imagination uh, with regards to our forest products here. Um, this new new or, or growing industry uh, sounds like just another one of those bad ideas. Um, they're not really a value added product. It's almost a kind of a, a new way to access wood that wouldn't have another use. Would you, would you agree with that? I absolutely. Um, like I said before, it, you know, it suddenly is a new home for what was so-called low value wood before. And um, so it's, it's for that to be getting these unbelievably lucrative subsidies. Um, I don't remember what it translates to translates to in terms of, you know, the pass through, like what they're actually getting paid for a ton of pellets, but um, it's, you only need to look at the outcome, which has been that the industry has grown explosively and exponentially in the last 10 years. Yeah. And obviously there's a, a finite lifespan to all of these plants. So I know Pinnacle is trying to move into Fort Nelson and promising the world, uh, you know, and that community has been there before with uh, their sawmilling and pulp milling operation. And so, again, I think it's one of these you know, boom and bust sort of resource extraction models where people move to the area, they have a job for a period of time, you know, build their life there. And lo and behold, you know, there's no more easily extracted wood or, or policy changes. And it, you know, leaves shattered hopes and dreams and communities and ecosystems. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where we need to be, you know, if there is a, oh, and obviously there's a need for people to earn an income, uh, but out of these forest stands, we could probably be doing a much better job to provide employment uh, uh, rather than you know, look for yet another way to subsidize an industry to put some money in pockets of, of shareholders that are probably not even living in Canada. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if we don't learn to live in balance with the little bit of natural resources that we have left, um, prognosis is not good. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, there's definitely better or more appropriate uses for this resource, whether it's, uh, you know, smaller scale harvesting. I mean, there's some beautiful cedar in there that could be 
utilized and milled for certain applications uh, as opposed to, you know, just in a broad brush approach of, of harvesting every stick. And from some of the photos that I've seen from your work, uh, particularly in Europe, it looks like they're really scavenging down to like branches and, and you know, the, it's almost like a agricultural setting when the, when the harvesting activities are concluded. Whereas, you know, when you're looking for saw logs, there's a lot of waste, which is remains, which actually is more beneficial for the ecosystem. Well, that's right. I mean, it's absolutely essential to leave after a harvest job to leave forestry residues um, for so many reasons. Um, you know, main, maintaining soil fertility and carbon status, uh, habitat, erosion control, all kinds of reasons. But, but really, I mean, globally, it's pure insanity to be harvesting any forest stands that are intact forests that we shouldn't be harvesting anything that is primary forest at this point. Yeah. There's so little of it left. It should be off limits to harvesting period. Um, you know, really, I mean, we have to despoil everything. We can't leave like a couple of percent of untouched forest. Like what, what's going to happen when it's gone? I mean, it's, it's such a, a pointless, um, you know, sad, thing that's happening right now and it's and it's happening you know obviously in a lot of places not not just bc but bc is super remarkable globally because it's such a poster child for how absolutely dumb this pellet industry is i mean you know and european policymakers who are you know these apologists for this industry. Oh, it's just residues. You know, they're, they're buying the line that they've been fed by the industry and we're feeding it back. And you show them these pictures of, you know, gigantic logs on the back of a truck going into a pellet plant and they just can't believe their eyes. And, you know, the vice president of the European Commission, uh, Franz Timmermans, used the word ecocide to describe mm -hmm you know, what's happening to forests globally. And, you know, I, I believe that he's genuinely appalled. Um, he has said that he's, he's just completely appalled by, you know, harvesting forests for fuel. But nonetheless, he and his cabinet are still acting as apologists for, you know, what they say. Oh, there, you know, some wood that we can use, some is okay. You know, forestry residues. And it's like, yeah, but wait a minute. The BC government basically greenlighted calling all that stuff residues. What these policymakers don't realize is that none of these words have any real meaning. They're very flexible. And so if they want to say it's, you know, waste wood and a residue because it doesn't have saw timber value, then all of a sudden everything's on the chopping block, including, you know, that 500 year old tree with a whole, you might've seen that picture of Michelle standing next to the, the bear den tree. You know, it's got, it's a huge ancient cedar with a, with a hole that is probably a bear den. It's, the tree is alive and the tree will stay alive for another 150 years and will keep storing carbon and providing habitat. But no, that to the wood pellet industry is, look, it's a residue because it's not got saw timber value. So, you know, this is one thing that I really encourage people is to be extremely skeptical of all this terminology, especially the word sustainability. If you hear that word, 
um, immediately be on your guard because it just doesn't mean anything. No, I, I agree. And are you familiar with um, sort of the, the concept in British Columbia's forest management of this long run sustainable yields or, or LERSI curves, which have been, you know, not correct and, and abused since the 70s? And again, in, with the case of Pinnacle, I mean, they're because Canfor hasn't been operating for some time, they're looking to increase their annual cut much beyond what it was at one point, which, um, you know, again, the government hasn't seemed to have learned anything based on what our allowable cuts have been in the past, which has brought us into this situation. So, you know, even if this, if this plant goes ahead and, and, and uh, allowed to log at the rate that it is going to, I mean, they may have five or 10 years uh, of harvesting activities. And then what? There's nothing left. We're again, you know, have had this massive ecological impact in a region and uh, the communities don't benefit um, and really, you know, the, the the planet as a whole doesn't benefit. So it's it's a really strange decision. But, you know, in this day and age, all the decisions that we see being made from our so-called leaders seem to be a bit bizarre and, and uh, ill-sighted or misplaced. Follow the money. Yeah, yeah. So is it is it time then that, uh, you know, in terms of forestry, that we, we shift from the singular focus of timber uh, towards, you know, what other resources the forest uh, provides for us or other capacities that the forest provides for us? Well, right now, um, <clears throat> the forest, you know, climate, climate science says that the only way to avoid really catastrophic climate change is to not only drastically reduce emissions, but to increase carbon uptake. And Forests are the only thing under human control, to the extent that they're under human control, uh, that take up carbon. I mean, this, the ocean takes up carbon, but we can't control that. So, and it's actually really bad because we don't want more CO2 dissolving in the ocean because it's acidifying the ocean, which is causing shellfish to dissolve. <laughs> That's bad. Um, so, you know, we need we need to restore well, protect, start by protecting intact forests um, and also protecting those forests that can become old growth forests. So the you know natural forests that may have been logged or used in some way, but that still show potential for maturing into much bigger, com more complex biodiverse systems. Um, so we need to protect, we need to restore. So that means, um, taking, you know, monoculture plantations um, and diversifying them and making them, you know, more complex ecosystems. Because, of course, it's not just about the climate crisis. It's about the biodiversity crisis and the loss of natural systems. And so those two things are the solution is in with regard to forests is the same, which is that we need a lot more bigger, more resilient, more biodiverse, more carbon storing forests that also happen to provide habitat for animals, provide water storage, slow release of water, you know, um, purification of water, all kinds of, you know, other benefits. So um, I always think back to that, you know, this, in the 70s or whatever, the bumper sticker trees are the answer. Well, guess what? Trees really are the answer. I mean, forests are the, not just trees, but, but forests and not just 
plantations, but complex biodiverse forests is what we need. And so really at this point, and we're seeing glimmerings of this, like for instance, in the Europe, in, in the EU, they just leaked uh, a draft forest strategy, uh, EU-wide forest strategy that actually does say a lot of really great things about exactly what I'm talking about, the need to re-naturalize forests and restore and protect forests. Um, needless to say, the forest industry is having a mass freak out about this. They don't like the idea at all that, you know, there might be someone who wants them to like back off a little bit on the intense forestry that they've been doing. But that's that's what needs to happen. And it's it's all hands on deck. And for policymakers, policymakers need to be prioritizing those functions. And so we need to pay people to protect resources. That is what it's going to take, is that we have to, instead of, you know, we shouldn't be subsidizing cutting down and burning trees for energy. We should be subsidizing people to restore forests and protect forests. Yeah. And I'll add to the, the, you know, the, the capacity of forests, one of the um, often overlooked uh, carbon sequestration abilities of our planet is in the, the grasslands uh, and our agricultural soils. And, you know, speaking with uh, Alan Savory in the past, uh, somehow that message has been missed by the climate alarmists. They don't seem to want to focus on uh, what we can do with our agricultural soils. And, you know, a, pro a properly managed agricultural soil can sequester between one and two tons of carbon per annum. Uh, if we're not, uh, you know, having a bare, bare soil type strategy for our agricultural systems. So it's interesting that that is always missing from the equation because it's so difficult for the you know the big multinationals to shift from you know their uh, chemical intensive agriculture into something that's more more regenerative model uh, which has benefits for you know water quality uh, topsoil integrity um, and even even the grassland uh, ecosystem in terms of what its biodiversity is uh, shifting away from sort of how we've managed those uh, ecosystems for the last even 150,000 years R really since people developed fire for either land clearing for farming or for uh, herding and, and uh, hunting animals. I, I will, you, you sort of had me at climate alarmist. Um, I will proudly embrace that, that, that unflattering <laughs> term. Um, I am extremely alarmed about the climate and I think you should be too. Well, um, maybe we can, uh, we'll have another episode where we debate that subject. Uh, with regard to Alan Savory, don't forget, I came out of a range department in Utah. So um, okay. back, when Al, back when Alan Savory was, was telling everyone that they needed their cows to trample the, um, anyway, that I don't disagree that, uh, that there's a lot of room for potential improvements in, in agriculture and, and definitely, you know, things like no-till agriculture and stuff, but there, you know, we could be storing more carbon in soils in general, um, but it's it's hard to do. Agricultural carbon storage in agricultural soils is super hard to do um, because you can so easily blow it uh, with, it's not just about carbon storage, it's about fertilizer management, for instance, because, you know, nitrogen oxide emissions from excess, excess nitrogen fertilizer that runs off and then you know goes into waterways and makes nitrogen oxide. 
extremely potent greenhouse gas, much more potent than CO2. And so um, it's, it's, you know, all about managing land for, for climate. I mean, that's a, a fantastically interesting and complex uh, challenge. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that we're facing much more of a topsoil uh, and capacity to feed ourselves than uh, any problems which will be attributed to a slight warming. I mean, if we look back in history at uh, warming events, warming events have typically treated humanity much better than uh, cooling events. Yeah. You, you must not have uh, been in Arizona lately. Talk no, no. Slight warming events. Take, take a look at the news from Arizona the last week. Yeah, I haven't I haven't been there yet, and uh, I haven't seen that, so I'll, I'll take a look. Yeah, just trust me, it's hot. It's like 123 in the shade, you know, That's, 10 yeah, hours a day. Yeah. So it's, um, it's not a slight warming. It's, it's catastrophic warming that is going to bake everything. I mean, you know, animals and plants can't survive without water. These are these are like events. You know, it's not just. Don't think of climate change as like this slow, gradual, average thing that's happening. It's this incremental, you know, increase. It's it's more intense events that you can think of as a sieve that, you know, certain organism, organisms are going to make it through and certain ones aren't. And, uh, you know, big heat waves that dry everything out are a sieve event it can really change the ecosystem very quickly. Interesting. Well, we'll, we'll save that for uh, the, the, the climate debate for another day, but uh, any, anything else to, to, to conclude here on the, our, our wood pellet discussion? No, I, I am really uh, impressed by the breadth of your questions and how much homework you did. And I, I hope you go away and do just as much homework on climate change. And <laughs> the next time sure, we talk, sure. if there is a next time that, that you won't won't be using the word climate alarmist as if it's a bad thing. Well, I'll, I'll send you some information, and perhaps next time we talk, you'll be more concerned about the uh, upcoming solar minimum than uh, a 0.4 degree temperature variation on a decadal basis. But uh, uh, we'll leave it there. Um, so, if, if listeners are interested to learn more about your organization and the work that you're doing, uh, I direct them to the uh, your website. There, or is there anywhere else that I would uh, send them? Um, we have, uh, the work we're doing in Europe is well covered by a website called forestdefenders.eu. And then our, our U.S. facing website is, uh, pfpi.net. Yeah, I got that one. Okay. So th th those two, I I've seen, you've got a lot of information at PFPI. Uh, it's a great resource for people to go look at and you've got, I guess, almost a decade now of, uh, material, or more yep. than a decade, I guess, now of material uh, on there. So there's uh, lots to read, lots to go over there. Yep. Definitely. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Booth. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate your time and your insights and, and your work in this arena. And uh, if, if, you're, if you're up for it, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, reconnect and, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll sling it out on the climate debate. Okay. <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank you. For Fantastic. You have a great day, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.